are back in uh, James chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 10 again today, in a sermon that's apparently two parts, as far as we know so far. Uh, started on this last week, and if you remember, we got a few verses into it and uh, ran out of time, and I didn't want to rush through it. So here we are back in James chapter 4, 1 through 10. Uh, last week, I, I mentioned how the language of war in this passage just really hit home to me in the midst of all that's going on in the Ukraine and seeing images from that conflict. Just struck me as I looked at this passage, a very familiar passage used quite often as we talk about conflict and resolving it and what the source of it is. And that language that James uses of war, hostility, fighting, is jarring as we have gone through James to see him speak of, of rejoicing and suffering and speak to his beloved brothers and sisters, speak tenderly, and here he just comes in a very strong way to make me think maybe I don't view conflict, I don't view my harsh words, I don't view my lack of encouragement as God does. And then he gets even more challenging in, in the part we'll look at today as he speaks not only of war but of adultery and strong, challenging words for us. But in the end, we get to that verse that, that we have tried to hit every week, which is in verse 6 and following about God giving more grace. This passage can really help us to understand that aspect of God's character if we will listen carefully. It is a path to living confidently. And would you read with me James 4, verses 1 through 10 of God's holy word. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is trustworthy and true. We, we thank you, Lord, that it meets us 
where we are, that it strengthens and upholds us, that it teaches us your ways. Would you do just that, Lord, as we come to you? Would you challenge us and transform us? That your word and your spirit working together would make us different. Make us more like Jesus by your grace. We pray in his name. Amen. So quarrels and wars and fighting and conflicts, waging war in our members, pleasures, desires, lusts, inordinate desire, not necessarily uh, sexual nature, envy, all those things in here, in this passage, all coming together as James makes this point that there is a lot of collateral damage in our relationships because of the battle within us as our desires wage war within us. And that desire war is what we talked about last week as we unpacked the, the idea that you know you're in this desire war when your allies become your enemies, when, when your friends become the target of your anger, your family, those close to you, even other brothers and sisters in the church. As well, you know you're in that desire war when your God becomes your servant, or worse. And as we started to really dig into that, we were running out of time and wound up at this place where we said, no, what we need to do is really identify what we desire. What is it we really want? What are we longing for? And it's not necessarily a bad thing that can cause us to damage our relationships with other people. It could be a good thing that we just want too much. Because as followers of Jesus, we are called to prioritize our relationship with God and with others. Or otherwise, we become like the world. And that's the distinction that James is making, and that's where we're going to jump in this week at, at the second point. Uh, that's where James goes next, that this desire war that we are in the midst of is, an, is evidence of deeper problems. It's deeper problems, and he again comes in with this strong language, surprising even. James has been so kind, you know, beloved brothers and sisters, you know, just this exhortation, uh, kind older brother. And now in verse 4, we read, he just says, you adulteresses. That's just bang. I don't know about you, but that just hits so hard. It's, it's important to note that he's most likely not speaking to particular members of that congregation like there were women who were committing adultery, breaking their marriage vows. That the sense is, if you read through all of the passage and the context here, the sense seems to be that he is using the language of the Old Testament. He's using the language of the prophets who would speak of the people of God as her and speak of the community as adulteresses 
adulterous people. You can see that throughout the scriptures. Hosea chapter 3, Jeremiah chapter 3, Ezekiel 16, this, this idea of unfaithfulness. That has been a perennial problem for God's people, right? You look through the Old Testament, and the story of God's people is one of wandering, one of taking God for granted, one of falling away and then crying out for mercy when it got bad. And that's a sense of where James is coming from here as he points to the people of God engaged in adultery by, in essence, cheating on the Lord. Committing spiritual adultery. Peter speaks of this in, uh, in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, and he links that adultery language to greed. That God's people sometimes get greedy, and that leads them astray from their faithful commitment to the Lord. And that might be the case here. It's echoes of Jesus in Matthew 6, 24, saying you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money or material things. That God has to have the priority. And if God doesn't have the number one priority in your life, you are cheating on him. There's, there's no middle ground. There's no sort of oh, in-between gray area Either God is first or something else is, someone else is, and that's in that area of desire. Right? If we don't desire the Lord first, we commit adultery and are unfaithful. That's, that's strong language, but that's the language of the scriptures. The people of God are cheating on the Lord with the world. That's what he says here in verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's a very dark, firm line. You, you can't straddle that fence. You can't have one foot in one and one foot in the other. If, if you are not fully committed to the Lord, you are in an unfaithful position. And that's where we all are. The only person who has been consistently faithful is the Lord Jesus. And so James gives us this, this warning after spending a couple of chapters, and by now you know we've spent weeks in this book, right? After a couple of chapters of encouragement, of, of gentle reminders of, of faith should have works, and the... the Warnings about not being quick to judge, but seeking a harvest of righteousness by making peace. All those things. And then he just, he just wants to hammer that point home here and to remind us just what's on the line. In the same way that, you know, I'm struggling as we've gone through this to realize just how serious God takes our words, our language. And it's not until I see images of war with people who look like me and recognize that's what James sees when he looks at the church and doesn't see love, doesn't see grace, doesn't see mercy. It's causing significant harm. It is rooted in this 
unfaithfulness to the Lord, that we are prioritizing something else. It means we want something other than what God wants. And so as, as we're looking at this desire war, we recognize then that if, if we are, uh, when we are, because we all do this, when, when we stray from the Lord and we begin, as he puts it here, uh, to, to prioritize our desire, even a good desire, more than God, when we begin to head in that direction, we are becoming like the world. We're getting friendly with the world, and that's the place we used to live before we knew the Lord, and where he wants us to leave and to be transformed from. That that hostility toward God has to be there. There, there is no way that you can engage in excessive desire. There's no way you can be unfaithful to the Lord and not join the team of the world. There's no way you can fail to prioritize the Lord and not join a different team than God's team. And, and the sense is, is this, that you're not really alone or on your own. Right? That's the deeper problem, is that when our desires get the better of us and become more important than God, we forget that we are not alone and we're not on our own. Because the definition and essence of elevating desires above God is to say that then we become God. We can determine for ourselves what's right or wrong, and we're not really alone. We're not really on our own. This is the God who loves us, and it says in verse 5, this is the God who is jealous. You know, sometimes as husbands, right, we get a little jealous if some, if some guy checks out our wife, or if our wife seems to, to look at another guy somehow, or just speaks like, hey, you know, that guy really knows how to mow the grass, you know? You get jealous of something like that, right? That's, that's silly, but if you, if you think about the, the Lord's jealousy, it is a holy and good thing. that He says, I want you all to myself. I love you that much. And God says, if you begin to look at the world, you begin to act like the world, if you prioritize something else, then, then, then you're not understanding how deeply I love you. And that hurts the Lord. That's the language here in verse 5. Do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And the underlying Greek there is a little hard to translate. Um, and one of the things to, to bear in mind, you say, oh, it's in quotes in, in most translations. Um, there were no quote marks, quotation marks in, in the original Greek. Greek just didn't have quotation marks. In fact, they, they didn't have spaces. All the letters were just ran together in all caps. You know, it's like, a nonstop somebody yelling at you. Remember when we used to email and people would be all in caps and be like, ah, you're yelling at me. That was Greek, okay? All caps, no spaces, nobody breathing or something. Um, so as we look at this, there were no quotation marks, and, and, and it's important to understand because if you look in the Old Testament, there is no text that aligns with this. There's, there's barely anything that you could say, oh, he's alluding to and referring to this particular text. It's not a direct quote. So I don't think it should have quotation marks around it. He's saying that the scriptures speak of God's jealousy. That God cares about his people. That, that it, the people of God are his bride. 
which is an even deeper reason why James says, you adulteresses, you are the bride of God. Whether you're a man or a woman, if you are one of God's people, you are part of his bride. And if you put something else more important than him, you are unfaithful to him. You're not alone. You're not on your own. In fact, you are loved. And this is what helps in all of this language of adultery and unfaithfulness. You are loved by a God of grace. Abundant grace. Look what he says. In the midst of all this language about your wars and your fighting, all the collateral damage you're causing by your inordinate desires leading you astray and wounding other people because you're putting something other than God first, but he gives, verse 6 says, a greater grace. His grace is greater than your sins, as the one hymn puts it, right? Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that should be in quotes because that is a quotation from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. God sets himself against the proud. God sets himself against us when we put ourselves above him. When, when we cheat on him, he says, I'm not going to tolerate that. That's not a bad thing. That's an exceedingly good thing. What is the alternative, right? If he just let us go our own way. If he didn't care. And just said, oh, that's fine. But God cares. And he won't leave us in that place of unfaithfulness. He'll pursue us. Because he is the God of grace. And so you put these things together with the, the, the first part was with the desire war. And we're talking about, okay, you need to identify what it is you really want. And the second aspect out of all of this is to say, let's ask God about it. Right? That's the second thing here. If, if the deeper, uh, if you're in the middle of the desire war, we recognize the deeper problem is that you're not alone. And that's actually not a problem. It's a really good thing. Because that means if you are in the midst of the desire war and, and, and you feel like, ah, oh, God, I have to have this. God, I really want this. And it could be something really good. Like, I want my children to flourish and thrive. It could be I'm single and I really want a spouse. It could be I don't have children I would really like to have them. It could be I lost my spouse and I really miss them. All of those things, right? All of those desires, there is nothing wrong with them in and of themselves. And so what we do to avoid the desire war or to bring about a peace in the midst of it is to take them to God, to ask God about it. He said, if you don't have because you don't ask, you ask but don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. To, to take it with open hands to God and say, God, this is what I really want. You are the God of grace. This is what I really want. And to say not only to pray that, but to search the scriptures to make sure 
This is an okay thing. And I can tell you, God is fully okay with you being upset that you have lost a loved one. God is on board with you having a longing for a deep and significant relationship with someone. God is fully on board with those things. To take it before Him and to say, does this align with Scripture? And even take that to some trusted friends who know the Scriptures and say, this is where I'm at. This is what I really am longing for. And to to apply Psalm 37, verse 4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Listen carefully to that. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. If you delight yourself in the Lord, you are a humbled person, right? You're saying, Lord, I need you. You have everything you can give, everything. You are the God of grace. And so this is what I want. And the thing about prayer is, if you bring your heart to the Lord, you bring your desires to the Lord, you say, this is what I want, and you look at the scriptures, and you say, Lord, this is what your word says. If you take the case of wanting a spouse, you know, Lord, you say it was not good for the man to be alone. Lord, I want that. I want a spouse. And if you are willing to say, Lord, I delight myself in you, it, it doesn't guarantee you will get a spouse. That's not what that psalm means. It doesn't guarantee you will have children. It doesn't guarantee your children will thrive and flourish. What it guarantees is that in the midst of those things, if you are delighting in the Lord, your desires will be submitted to the Lord. And he will give you the desire of your heart because what you most want is what God wants. The only way you get to that place of wanting what God wants is by spending time with him, by reading his word, by praying, by spending time with his people. That's the only way Psalm 37, 4 works itself out, that you will delight yourself in the Lord and get the desires of your heart. Because what happens in prayer as you go before the Lord from a humble position is that you are transformed. You are changed. You can't spend time with someone without being changed, right? That's why the scriptures say bad company corrupts good character, right? That's, that's why you worry about your kids hanging out with those people because you know that's the way it works. That's why Solomon went off the rails because he married so many women from pagan nations who led him astray. Right? That's the things that happen. And the flip side is true too. If you will spend the time with the Lord desiring him and delighting him and, and, and you know, maybe, maybe you're struggling with that. Maybe you don't want him. Just spend a little time with him and say, Lord, I don't even want to spend time with you. Lord, I really would rather be whatever it is. But there's this little part of me that says I should spend time with you. So Lord, would you change me? Would you transform me? Even a tiny bit, Lord. I'm coming before you, and this is what I really want. And I know I should want you, and I'm struggling. Because you're not alone. You're not on your own. 
You are loved by the God of grace. And, and when you turn astray from him, you're on the wrong team. And it will be miserable. You will not have delight. And so, identify what you really want. Ask God about it. Pray. Look at the scriptures. Talk to other believers. And then draw near. It's our last point. Draw near. Return to God. No matter whether you strayed from him, uh, you know, five minutes ago, five years ago, 50 years ago, return to God. Look at verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And submitting is, is, is a lot of baggage on that word in a lot of ways. It, in essence, it means just lining yourself up under. Um, at, at one point in our parenting of our kids, they got tired of seeing this one illustration we always do, which is okay. So, so here's God. Here's Mommy and Daddy. You know, I need a third hand. So, but, you know, and here's you, right? Now, you know, if mommy and daddy tell you something, but we're under God, and you know, God has said we, we're your parents, you know, and so when, we, when you decide to do this thing that we said not to do, where are you? Okay, here's God. Okay, yeah, you're here, right? You're putting yourself, no, not above mom and daddy. You're also putting yourself above God, right? So the, submitting to God is to say, look, this is the order of things, God. You're first. I will line up under you. I will submit to your will, God, not mine. Someone said, you know, in order to pray, thy kingdom come, as we all did just a little while ago, right? We have to be willing to say, my kingdom go. That's, that's submitting, right? That's lining up under God, drawing near to God. It brings up not, not only that aspect, but this idea of worship, especially the ceremonial system. You know, the draw near to God with sacrifices, uh, draw near to God in the temple area or the tabernacle before that, right? The, God set up, up this whole sacrificial system and ceremonial system in the Old Testament to say, look, I will do whatever is necessary for you to be able to come near to me again, even though you have been unfaithful, even though you have wandered astray. I will make a way. Return to God, he says. Verse 7, resist. Resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. He says, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This, these two aspects, the, the return and resisting, they, they, they summarize and typify the life of Jesus from the very beginning of his mystery, especially this idea of resisting the devil. You think about the life of Jesus from the very beginning, Luke chapter 4, all the Gospels kind of cover this. What was the very first thing in his ministry that happened as he came uh, to John the Baptist? The very next thing is he's in the wilderness and the devil is attacking him verbally, challenging him with scriptures even. Jesus going back and forth with scriptures. 
and, and being victorious in the midst of really challenging circumstances, the temptations. And then at the end, the evening before the cross, the devil is there again, tempting. And what is Jesus saying? Father, will you take this cup from me? Luke twenty two forty one. 41. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The temptation to find a bloodless path to glory, the temptation in the human nature that Jesus was fully human to avoid that suffering, that pain, that death to come was overcome and conquered by the fact that Jesus was at the same time fully God. That the two together were necessary. Which says to you and I, we have no hope of overcoming and winning the desire war. There is nothing we can do because we've already been unfaithful. And our only hope is to humble ourselves before the Lord, to draw near to him, believing his promises that he will draw near to us. Believing that he loves us and has not left us alone. To look back on that cross and say, Jesus paid the full price. To trust in returning to God and resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil that we repent and believe. That is all that is required. And the language here of cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Jesus never had to do that. But he did pay that guilt, that debt payment. He broke the power of sin. He took the shame of failing God. He covered it. And to obtain it, all you have to do is, verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom, to, to repent. To say, Lord, I don't want this anymore. Lord, I have wandered from you and I want more of you. And, then, and I know, those of you who know the Lord and love the Lord, that is what you want and you don't want it, right? The, the good that I want to do, that I don't do. There's this battle raging within us that we want to do what's right. We experience shame and guilt and fear when we do what's wrong. And Jesus is the answer. So as you come to him and you're, you're, you're battling in this desire war, you want what God wants for you. And don't, as you wander off, you, you, because, because unfaithfulness to the Lord puts you in the camp of the world and on the team of the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? You're going to hear the lies that you can never come back. That you, you are all done for. That there is no hope. There's always hope. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. There's no other way to go about it. You have to go through humility 
You have to go from pride down. You have to be on your knees and you have to submit your heart to the Lord, submit your life to the Lord, submit all there is to the Lord. Then he says he will exalt you. Do you believe these promises? If you've humbled yourself and repented, you will be exalted. Initially, I mean, that's literally just getting up from the guilt and the shame, being set free, being enabled to persevere a little longer. But ultimately, you will be freed from the grave and the power of death. As, as time goes on, Lord willing, your repentances will get shorter. You will win. And you will lose. But you're not alone. Identify what you really want. Ask God about it. Take it to him in prayer, the scriptures, others in the community. And from this last point of drawing near to God, consider honestly how has that desire impacted your relationship with God and with others? How is it helping or hindering your relationships? Because when it's a, a desire that is a good thing but it's too much, you'll find the collateral damage in your relationships, right? You'll find your wife saying you work too much or uh, you'll find the, the kids pulling away from you or you'll find you're angry or defensive. Probe on those things. Consider those things. What's going on here? I just, I, I'm just, look, listen for that language in, in, in your moments of when you feel uh, guilt or shame or, you know, I'm just wanting, listen for just. In your language, I just, what, what is that thing? Isolate it, think about it, pray about it, take it to the Lord and consider how that thing you just want is helping or hindering your relationships with God and with other people. I have seen too many times in my life A young single woman just wanting a relationship with that boy. And everyone around her, not maybe in the best and helpful way, is saying, it's just not good. If there's a path you're on and everyone's against it, and they're on God's team, Slow down. Think about it. Pray about it. Submit it to God. And there are times when there are things you want. And, and, and it's very confusing. And there can be pain and there can be hardship. 
If you can isolate what it is you want, if you take that to the Lord, holding it loosely, and I'm not guaranteeing you that's an instant response. I'm not guaranteeing you that's not a lifetime challenge. But it's only in that place of humility where the God of grace will meet you. One of the, one of the pastors that are, we had our regional church meeting yesterday, Presbytery meeting, and one of the pastors was sharing about his experience of taking a, a sabbatical. Um, and one of the things he shared was that he didn't want to go because he was so necessary. You know, he thought, you know, the church will fall apart without me. There's all these kind of pride things going on. And then, and then he's there and he's just, he's reading his scripture and he just had time to read the scripture. He's reading the scripture and he just realizes, you know, when I came to faith, I had joy. I don't have that joy. And he was reading a book uh, about Jesus and just moved by the grace of this, this love of God. And he was overwhelmed with joy. He had humbled himself by doing things that were hard, pridefully, you know, humbling himself. He was spending the time in God's word, humbly seeking the Lord. And God met him there. Circumstances didn't change, right? Nothing about his world changed except humbling himself before the Lord, drawing near. And the Lord met him there. And I can't guarantee that will happen to you in a moment, in an instant. I can guarantee you this. You will be in a much better place, humbling yourself, seeking the God of grace, than you will be going on your own. Because you are not on your own. You are loved by this God of grace. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray you would help us this week. Encourage us even, Lord, as we consider our desires. Lord, I, I know there are many of us who say, oh, this is what I really want, Lord, and it's a good thing. And there are many of us, Lord, that, that as we ask you about it, as we look at the scriptures, we pray about it, we talk to others, it's like, this is a really good thing. And we look at it, Lord, and it's like, yeah, that serves our, our relationship with you. It serves our relationship with other people. It's helping. It's a good thing. And Lord, we just have to wait. Give us that grace. Lord, I know other of us, we're struggling. Lord, there's something we want, and it's just, it's not your will. It's maybe in a gray area that seems, or it's just wrong. Oh Lord, give us the grace to draw near to you and for you to teach us that as well. Give us the humility, Lord, to repent, to turn from our sin, to turn to you, to resist the devil, knowing you have won the victory, to draw near to you, knowing you've opened the way. Lord, cleanse our hands, purify our hearts. Let us return to you and experience that grace, Lord, without anything in our circumstances even changing at all. 
Meet us in our humility, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.